they all are now again out shoveling snow like the new time because the car is buried and the train is buried and the bike won't be seen again until March because there's been so much snow over the last week or so. I wouldn't know anything about that, lads. I'm sitting looking out a window in Doha, Qatar at the World Cup and sure isn't the sun splitting the stones and you could fry an egg in the stones here if you had an egg and you could certainly sink a point of harp but that'd be illegal in this country. You need a, a license to go and buy gargle. I hope you're all feeling well. I hope you're enjoying the uh, the football that's on the World Cup. Four matches a day, right? Now, if you love sport and that kind of thing, this is a perfect time for you. If you don't, it's probably driving you absolutely bananas. I know there's a lot of teachers listening to this uh, podcast because there's a lot of people working for various schools, not least the international English schools and that. And I'd say trying to keep the lads and the girls concentrated on their schoolwork when there's games happening at 11 o'clock in the morning cannot be the easiest thing in the world. So uh, as you well know, I work a lot with sport myself and I have the privilege of coming to things like the Winter Olympics and the Summer Olympics and here I am at the World Cup down here in Doha. If you're following the other podcast and you should be following the other podcast, lads, the Global Gale podcast, uh, hopefully next week you will hear from a lad who actually lives locally here in uh, Doha because I'm supposed to be meeting him in about an hour's time which is where I'm recording this for you now and on that podcast this week as well uh, which just came out on Saturday morning uh, I spoke to Cora Staunton down below in Australia fantastic ladies Gaelic football player rugby player soccer player you kind of get the feeling that that girl could turn her hand to anything and be absolutely brilliant at it so check that out over there but today we're going to be talking about things related to the environment and to author Owen Gaffney who lives among us here in Sweden outside of Stockholm out in the archipelago and Owen is an author who has written a book called Earth for All a survival guide for humanity and um, it's one of those things that I suppose Stockholm has become the epicenter if you like along with Greta Thunberg and the Fridays for Future protests and it's become the kind of place where there's a lot of focus on those sorts of issues and not least with the recent change of government rolling back really I suppose and a lot of the progress that was made I felt it was kind of time to talk to Owen about his new book uh, Earth for All and to have a little chat with him about what we could do before we get into all that right remember it is a listener supported podcast lads right and i have to say it's always a little bit heartbreaking when you go into patreon.com forward slash arrowman in stockholm and i go into the little dashboard there and i find that somebody has cancelled their their uh, patronage of this show because <laughs> when i talk to people about it it's kind of like war every time i convince one is to, to join the patreon you know it's it's it always takes ages you know so if you do appreciate the content if you appreciate the podcast sign up lads it works out about 60 euro a year which you could happily spend on an evening out in martin hessian's wonderful veerstrom's pub which has probably shown if not all the games certainly the vast majority of the games in this world cup so it would do me a great favor if you were to go to patreon.com forward slash our man in stockholm and sign up there you can sign up for two euros a month you can sign up for five euros a month but the more people we get signing up the more i'll be able to bring you these podcasts podcasts and the Global Gale podcast and the Premier Swedes podcast which will be back when Swedish footballers who played in the Premier League start picking up their phones again. Uh, if you don't want to do that, if you want to sort of, you know, swish me, if you hear an episode that you like and you want to swish me a few bob, you can do that on 123 I'll give you a second now, get the phone out of your pocket, open up the L swish, grant, yeah, 
Logging in with the bank ID there. Yeah, lovely, lovely grand, yeah. So the number is 123-2424-166. And you can fire on a few bob there to keep the lights on. Jeez, I hope the heating's on and sank the exploring the little studio there now because otherwise the pipes could be frozen asunder by the time we get back there. But we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Anyhow, let us go on and have a little chat here with Owen Gaffney. It was, this was recorded a few weeks ago. It was actually a friend of mine, Michael Campanella, brilliant photographer great guy uh, he told me he was going out to interview Owen and I said Jesus I must get Owen on the podcast to talk about his new book and so Michael went out there and just as they were chatting away set up the photographs I think the article actually that uh, they used the photographs in eventually appeared in the Irish Times but here is your own exclusive interview if you don't mind boys and girls on the Irish in Sweden podcast with our own Owen Gaffney on his book and the environment and as he says a bit of a survival guide for humanity I suppose we get right down to it, and for once I'm going to start in the obvious place, right? Can you tell me about the book that has come out? Is it called Earth for All that came out on the 20th of September? What it's about and why it's so important for it to come out at this time? Okay, so yeah, uh, well, uh, I'll give you the short story. There's a very, very long story to this. Um, uh, But we, you know, there's a lot of collapse narratives in the world, you know. Um, is um, is the world going to collapse? Um, is civilization going to collapse? Hey, how long has humanity got? And we were we wanted to look at. Well, hold on. Uh, that's uh, uh, what's what's the antidote to that? Are there any narratives or are there any pathways to actually um, avoid that? How much would it take? What would it take um, to do that? And what are the risks this century? So basically what we wanted to do was to bring together some of the world's leading um, computer modelers, um, system dynamics modelers and um, economists and go, well, how, how, what scenarios are more, most likely to, to stabilize um, population, to uh, stabilize the planet and to provide well-being for all? How could we sort of optimize our models for, um, for well-being? So that, yeah. that's basically what the book is about. It's looking at, the, at these scenarios. And, and the good news is, is that we, we can um, st- stabilize the planet. We can stabilize population. Uh, we can stabilize con- consumption um, at levels where we can all have a very high well-being being you know we're currently eight billion people um and potentially you know rising to around um nine billion uh this century we can have a high standard of living um and live on a re- relatively stable planet so that's that in a nutshell um that's that's what we were attempting to do so you kind of want to move a little bit away from this sort of catastrophization the world is ending you know but make sure you recycle absolutely everything get that electric car for the love of god don't have the christmas lights in the window this year etc and present a sort of okay if we do this we'll actually be okay kind of thing well not only will we be okay actually we'll have a very good standard of living um and we can we can uh have uh you know healthy lives healthy diets living in pollution-free um cities and and it's not going to cost the earth i mean that's one of the narratives it's just too expensive nobody will do it you know it's actually an investment in our future it's about valuing our future and the investment is pretty small it's about two to four percent of um uh, of global income so um this it's it's entirely affordable so yeah we wanted to look at the positive narratives um but also we can't we're, we're, we're realists you know um there, there are huge risks we are taking, and uh, and it's not going to be easy. 
it's uh we, we we've been facing we've had shock after shock after shock for the last few decades you, you know we've had the, the global financial crisis and just as we're getting out of that we uh we have the pandemic and just after we get out of that we have the um the, the war in ukraine and the energy crisis and food crisis and then we're going into a uh, a recession and we've got inflation so we're always going to have these shocks and actually we say in the book that we're going to have bigger shocks in the future um, and we're not going to be able to get rid of that. But how do we build more resilient societies, societies that are better able to deal with those shocks where the most vulnerable in society are, are supported and have a high standard of well-being? So then so then we, we create better social cohesion, people working together better uh, with some of the solutions we're proposing so that um, if we have social cohesion, uh, we have trust in governments to make long-term decisions uh, for the benefit of everybody. That's 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 the ultimate goal, and uh, and we provide um, some some solutions to do that. Uh, that sounds kind of like the exact opposite of where we are at the moment in terms of trust in government and social cohesion and that. What's it going to take, both on a sort of a, a macro on a very high level, but also personally? What do you and me need to do? Do you, like is, are your experts recommending that we should all become vegetarians? That we all start to start to use bicycles again, or is it you know is there a huge level of change required from each and every one of us? Yeah, so there there is a huge level of change um, required from everyone, um, but it's changed for the better. I mean, uh, so it's uh, it's not um, taking anything away; um, it's it's giving. So um, you know, it's moving to um, healthier diets uh, that are you know healthier for individuals and uh, healthier for the planet. You know, if 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 we don't do anything, we're going to hit a tipping point in terms of obesity um sometime this this century will reach uh, you know over half the planet will be um will be overweight or obese P people tend not to want to be obese um so uh you know people want uh want to move on to healthier diets um so so we you know so, so so we think you know government support and companies um should um should should help uh, people people move on to those diets in terms of yeah um cycling uh, mass transport systems um electric cars um certainly all these things for for cities um but they'll make cities more livable you know they have less pollution in cities um people get more exercise in cities so um so there's there's there's, there's a lot of positives to this um ab absolutely in terms of um that trust in government um the you know we're seeing a pullback from uh trust in government over the last 40 years or so this this steady decline we're seeing you know polarization we're seeing the rise of autocratic leaders uh the rise of dictators uh and we're seeing a pullback from democracy and, and one of the causes for this is that um, the majority of people aren't seeing their their well-being improve. While uh, the world is getting wealthier and wealthier, it's going to you know a smaller number of people. You know the um, uh, the, the, the there's about um, two thousand three thousand billionaires in the world, um, and and their emissions you know are absolutely huge. Um, they they're extracting a lot of the wealth from society. And uh, and this and that's creating distrust. So they're what not only are they a cause of of the problems in terms of pollution, but they're actually undermining democracy. So we we argue in the book that we need a big big redistribution of wealth in the world, and that um, to to help build trust. Because if you have very big 
economic inequality, then that translates to political inequality. The rich have more power and people see that. And um, if the rich have more power, then their policies are put into place by governments and uh, the poorer get left further behind. So so we can absolutely see the, the link between economic inequality and political inequality. And we absolutely need to address it because only by addressing it, sharing out wealth more equally, not perfectly equally, just um, a fair level of inequality, shall we say. Mm. Um, and we, we there's research on what a fair level of inequality is, what people are prepared to accept. Um, then, then we can build trust in governments. We can improve social cohesion. And then governments um, will feel empowered to make longer term decisions, which they're, they're just not able to do at the moment. So that, that's that's our theory of change there. Um, so we're saying that the 10% richest in the world should take, you know, um, uh, less than 40% of, uh, of, of global income, and they're taking substantially more than that at the moment. Um that that idea of sort of rowing back and going sort of back to where we were before this you know this level of unfairness that we're all prepared to accept one of the things that i've noticed in sweden and in scandinavia and in sort of left wing left wing politics in general over a long time is that they've all moved to the right a good bit on you know they all want to be friendly with the billionaires tony blair's a millionaire himself after pretending that there's a third way where do we find the politicians who are talking about this? Where do we find the ones that we can trust to do this that aren't looking for, you know, a job on the board when they're kicked out of parliament or kicked out of the prime minister's office? Where do these people even exist in politics at the moment? Oh, you know, absolutely they do. And, um, and you know, I, I can think of people like Bernie Sanders and um, AOC in the United States. And and here, you know, here in Sweden, we have the, you know, uh, Venster Party and um, uh, Emilio Party. Um, who uh, and, and social democrats to to some degree um, have uh, you know uh, you know are are the parties of the people in some ways and have um, are the parties who want to promote um, you know greater um, equality uh, in society um, but you know as you point out um, their narratives aren't winning um, the the populist narratives um, are very hard to shift and um, and, and a, a very very powerful very very attractive um, so I, I just think the, um, the 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 left of center parties uh, need to rethink their narratives to um, uh, to to find more compelling um, narratives for um, uh, for what they're doing and I think often um, it's a it's uh, they're, they're promoting policies that are very very complex um, when the on the other side the sort of authoritarian leaders the populist leaders provide you know very very simplistic answers to things oh you know it's it's china oh it's immigrants um will uh, i'm going to sort it out you know it's a simple problem here it is and i'm going to sort it out uh, it, uh, unfortunately it's not simple um, it is complex um and i think the the people with the the strong narratives um around greater um, levels of um, equality in the world uh, need need to find a kind of simpler message, and and in that, you know, one of the big things we propose in the book is a citizens fund, um, so that um, uh, everybody in society would receive a dividend each year uh, for for use of the the global commons. So if um, if companies are polluting or extracting mineral um, resources or using our oceans, then they pay into a a citizens fund. For that and then that's divided um, equally among all citizens in society and people have said to us oh you know surely it should be means tested surely the poorest should should get the most out, out of this but we would argue that in fact 
it's it should be shared out absolutely equally because if it's shared out equally everybody will see the benefits themselves and they're more likely to support it in future it's more likely to get cross-party support um, and it's more likely to get an intergenerational support and we see that in you know alaska for example they have the um they have something like a citizens fund there um where and it was set up by a Republican in in the 1970s, um, and basically uh, um, oil companies pay to uh, to mine or to extract oil. Um, everybody in Alaska, literally everybody, whether you're a multimillionaire or um, living on the breadline, you get a check for um, you know, around one thousand one thousand five hundred dollars every year. The highest check, the biggest check, was paid to under Sarah Palin's governance, um, and it was of over three thousand dollars. And it's very very popular across parties. Um, in fact, you try to get rid of that um, uh, that dividend in Alaska, and you you, you won't uh, you won't get elected um it's uh it's super positive so so that's what we want we want something that um that will be uh we try to put together some proposals that would um that would be able to to straddle that line between left and right um that could be supported by um all parties um but also that uh do more to redistribute wealth mm. it's an interesting answer. one no, it's a long and a fascinating answer. And this is a great thing. And this, I'm so grateful for your time to talk about these things because they're the kind of things that you don't really hear discussed in the election campaign that we've just had here. I mean, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, right, because obviously you're talking to people who think about these things a lot. And I know you think about these things a lot yourself. Uh, if you take the Green Party, Miljöpartiet here in Sweden, I've never seen a party exposed to as much vile and vitriol as they were in the last election campaign. I'm not a fan of Green Parties per se. I do think that it's a part of social justice. It belongs within sort of social democracy and indeed it belongs in every party. But why do you think that is? Are they sort of specifically targeted? Because since the election now, we've seen that what was previously the environmental department here has disappeared into some sort of business and commerce department. Why are they the target of so much ire, do you think? Yeah, I, I, I don't. I honestly don't. Um, I don't know. Um, I mean, I would uh, question. Um, I, I, you know, what they're saying basically. They, the Green Party were the only party offering um, solutions at the scale uh, needed to address the problem, and their solutions they were offering um, were at a scale that that could get broad support in society that were fair, reasonably fair and and just. Um, so um, they're going to attract um, ire because it's going to require significant transformation, um, and uh, and people are afraid of transformation. Um, and some of um, and some parties uh, and some um, uh, advocacy groups uh, want to challenge that. And uh, but but scientifically, um, they're they're very well grounded. Um, what uh, they were the closest to what we need to achieve the Paris Agreement. Um, so um, it's I think it's it's down to messaging. I don't think um, I think too many people feel it's it's going to be a sacrifice to people's lives. Um, and I think we need to frame it as um, uh, not a sacrifice at all. In fact, it's going to make make lives better. I think the the um, the opponents of this agenda have been pushing for well are pushing a narrative that um they're they're pushing us back to the middle ages and uh, uh which I, I just don't think is true i think uh, with um they're pulling us into the 21st century um that's the future of the um the the, the global economy 
How has the book re- been received so far? So you had a lovely spread in the Irish Times recently. My good friend Michael Campanella was out taking lovely portrait pictures of you. Have you found yourself, you know, as an overnight success after 30 years of talking about these things? Um, yeah, so the, 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 the response has been fantastic. It's been, um, really, really exciting. Uh, you know, we've had uh, wonderful endorsements from people like Ban Ki-moon, um, uh, the former United Nations Secretary General and, uh, Thomas Piketty, um, uh, one of the world's leading economists on, on inequality. Um, and, uh, Teresa Ribera, the, the vice president, uh, vice prime minister of, um, uh, of Spain and, and many more. So, so we've been overwhelmed actually with, um, uh, with, with good feedback, um, uh, probably the most exciting thing that's happened is we, we launched the book at the New York Stock Exchange, um, which, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. Um, it's like, you know, uh, I, I cannot believe I could not even believe that we would even be invited to that uh, to that institution um, with our message. Um, but they did. And they, they welcomed us with uh, with open arms and champagne and um uh, and they gave us a platform and we were really pleased with that. So maybe, you know, so, there's some sort of sign that um, that things are changing. Um, as you as you mentioned as well, you know, we're in a, a lot of turmoil in the world right now with the um, uh, with Russian aggression, the war in Ukraine and the energy and food crisis in, in Europe. So this this agenda that we're talking about is I think it's really um it couldn't be more important. It's really central to to discussions. You know, everybody in Sweden, you know, f- around the election, it was all about economic growth. You know, oh, we're the party of economic growth. We're going to to grow the economy. The same in the UK with the the recent election there. It was all about economic growth, and that narrative is never questioned. It's just you know, journalists don't question it. They just go, oh yeah, okay. So how are you going to deliver this economic growth? But they never ask, well, what is the economic growth for? You know, oh, you know, it's it's improving well-being. Um, you know, we find that economic growth doesn't always improve well-being. Um, you know, we need directed growth. We need directed growth towards um, you know green economies, towards uh, regenerative agriculture, um, towards education and health. This is this is what we need the investment in. Um, so that's what we talk about. And this, so, um, so, so so to get back to your original question, that um, yeah, I think we've had such a strong response because um, the time is now. This is where this. Uh, you know, the discussions on economic growth um, are really, really alive right now in the in the media. If we zoom out a little bit, the name Owen Gaffney, the accent doesn't exactly suggest a huge amount of Irishness at all times. But is there an, there's an Irish uh, story there somewhere in there, is there? Oh, well, yeah, yeah give me a few pints and um, it comes out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, well, I was born in Clare and um, and we uh, we lived um, we lived on a farm in Clare. Uh, which I just visited um, over the summer for the first time in decades, um, uh, Brook Lodge near Tuller. Um, but we um, but we moved to to the UK for my dad's job um, when I was like three or four. Uh, and then we moved back to Ireland uh, well, when I was about eight or nine, um, but this time to Northern Ireland, um, to Antrim. Uh, and so, you know, I you know, grew up in Antrim, essentially. Um, so my accent is um, is all over the place, um, uh, probably. But, you know, I picked up um, an English accent, um, I guess, when we moved there originally. And then we, we actually when I moved back to Northern Ireland. Have you seen Dairy Girls? I have, of course. Yeah. What a show. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I watched Dairy Girls. The first time I saw that, you know, I actually went to school in County Derry to a Catholic uh, uh, grammar school there. Um, and it, it was previously an all-girls school, um, that so that there weren't so many boys there. And when this show came on with this English guy um, in this girls' school, I was going, this this is so familiar. <laughs> <laughs> It's weirdly familiar. Um, so, um, yeah, but that's 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 the story, you know, and I, um, you know, I left to go to university in uh, in Southampton and uh, I hadn't haven't spent a huge amount of time in Ireland since then. Uh, but then my my father, um, he, uh, he 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 was terminally ill earlier this year and and, um, and, and sadly passed away back in February. I'm sorry um, to hear that. But uh, th thanks. Thanks. Um you know, he was he was he would have turned 85 this year um so he he uh, and i managed to spend a month um bef uh, looking after him in antrim and that's the longest i'd spent in a long time and it was absolutely wonderful being back up um up north and then then spending six weeks um down in cork actually with my mother and uh uh, family um there in the summer which has been been brilliant actually they, 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 i mean I, I, I do, you, do you go back much? Where, where, whereabouts? Are you I, from? I'm from Dublin. In fact, my parents don't live about 20 minutes from Dublin Airport. And before the pandemic, obviously, you'd be over and back, you know, once every two or three months and then two or three weeks in the summer. It was much easier every second Christmas. That, but because the pandemic, I think we've been back once. I've been back, I think, twice. My kids have only been there once since the end of the pandemic, really. So relatively regularly, it has to be said, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's, I mean, I hadn't, um, I, yeah, we, during the pandemic, we hadn't got back at all. Um, but you know, so much has changed there. I mean, it's such a, it, I, I love going back. It's just brilliant. Um, especially the North, actually. It's, um, it's really vibrant and exciting. And, uh, it's just a different vibe to, uh, to when I was growing up there. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because, I mean, Derry Girls, obviously, one of the things that they covered in that is sort of the end of the Troubles and the ceasefire and that. Now, coming from Clare and then going and, you know, your accent changes and then you come back to Antrim, what was it like for you growing up there? Because, you know, Gaffney is a relatively neutral surname and that. Did you experience that sort of sectarianism a little bit that you were sorted into a particular box or that kind of thing? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you, you're exposed to constant sectarianism and oppression in Northern Ireland, you know, growing up in the 80s, it's impossible to to ignore. And in fact, you know, when I moved to Southampton, after a few months, I was going, what, what is this feeling? I just felt like something different had happened. I was trying to put my finger on it, um, just a general feeling in society. And I was going, ah, it's just a lack of oppression. The fact that you're not being, you know, <laughs> You stopped and you're going out to, you know, uh, coming back from a club or a pub, you're constantly stopped and searched and um, uh, and everything. So, um, yeah. And and the whole schooling system where, you know, a lot of um, I, I had friends at school who had never knowingly spoken to a Protestant before. And uh, which seems just crazy. I mean, that's just going to um, uh, cause, you know, if you if you want to create a society um, where you've got a polarized society, uh, creating an education system where two sides are constantly kept apart is um, is uh, is one is is one way to do it. Um, so it's constantly, you know, this was you know constantly in in your face, and it's but it was just something you grow up with, and you don't really think anything differently about it until you go somewhere else and realize that um, you know it's just part of life, really. Um, so yeah, you know we're exposed to it. At the same time, you know I'm from a pretty middle class family, so you know I'm, I'm not from um, 
you know the uh, you know the Falls Road or or, or anything like that or mm. um, you know East Belfast. Um, so, uh, but you know um, you, you, you 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 can't help but be exposed to it. Um, yeah. It's a remarkable thing. I always remember that thing, especially the first time you go abroad, you know, and then all of a sudden you meet somebody and say, oh, where are you from? Northern Ireland. You go, oh, what's your name? You know, and there's a guy actually in, in the uh, the museum in Derry and his name is John and he won't tell you his surname until he's finished doing the tour because he doesn't want you drawing any conclusions about, you know, wh what side of the story he's telling. And he's brilliant at telling both sides of the story. Um, how did you find it, Owen? Because now living in Sweden and having been here for many years and having children of your own, um, I always found that, you know, growing up in Ireland, I have very little to contribute in terms of, you know, how to raise children because we had that sort of, you know, Catholic upbringing, etc. Did you find that your mind had been opened by university in Southampton and that you left some of these things behind you? Or, you know, did you adopt the Swedish ways straight away? Um, I, I, I love the Swedish system and the Swedish um, schooling system. Um, I think uh, it, it's been absolutely, you know, fantastic. It's, it's kind of... Um, uh, fr freewheeling um system compared to um to to the irish education system or, or the, were you um, jealous uh, of it all were you jealous that you didn't get the same education as our kids are getting i i keep telling them yeah you know <laughs> <laughs> you know you, we, you you'd never had it so good you'd never have to wear a uniform you like um i mean it's just it, sometimes it's just crazy there's um the, the, the uh, my son said i said oh what do you do today and he says oh we had a maths class but then the maths teachers just took us out to pick mushrooms in the forest <laughs> and uh they, they they live next door to a forest or they uh, the schools next door to a forest and it was good you know mushroom season and you just can't even imagine that and you know they're swimming in the lake near the near the school in um there was, there was no lake swimming near loch Ney, i tell you that <laughs> <laughs> bloody, bloody cold there most of the time yeah, as well, isn't it? Uh, yeah, cold and miserable. So, um, yeah, different lifestyle completely. Um, so, yeah, I'm very, very jealous. Um, and, you know, I, I, I actually, you know, when I moved from England to Northern Ireland, they had corporal punishment in Northern Ireland. So, you know, there were teachers hitting kids, um, which, you know, then coming from a system where they didn't do that, um, there was, you know, outlawed, I guess, a decade or so earlier. It was like really like a sort of culture shock that, what the hell is going on here? Um, but you know, all of that. Glad, <laughs> uh, glad our kids uh, uh, can can avoid all of it. I can't remember the exact year that they made it illegal in Ireland, but I remember when it happened. And I remember going into the school and saying to the teacher, "You can't hit us anymore." And I got the biggest slap across the head I ever got. And I was like, okay, maybe the law doesn't apply in here in the way that I thought it did, you know? It's crazy. It's, it's crazy. It's wild, you know? That's that's the thing. We have to relearn all these things. But, I mean, th the problem that you and I have right now is that our time is limited because you have such a vast array of experience in terms of working with the Nobel Prizes. You know, you seem to be a man that, you know, when people want to think about things, they call on you. What was it you studied in Southampton that led you down this path that has led to this book uh, so so i studied um astronautic engineering in southampton so sort of rocket science uh, spacecraft design and satellite design um and uh I, I i had this idea of being like the first irish man in space at um at one point um and I, but i was always quite good at maths i suppose and um and science and you know uh that th those sorts of subjects so i really wanted to um to get into into that um so th that's kind of led me down this path but then you know, to be honest, when I finished, I realized that a lot of people in 
in that line um, end up working in the defense industry. You know, in my final year, I was de designing missile casings, um, you know, as part of the, the degree, as you could, uh, you could maybe can imagine. And I just didn't feel that so comfortable with um, that kind of tra career trajectory. So so I kind of went off the rails, I'd say, in my 20s, um, or at least took a sort of um, scenic route. Um, you know, I tried teaching for a bit and um as uh, uh, doing a lot of music and um, film and, uh, you know, trying to set up um, like a, a business. Um, and a lot of things, you know, uh, I tried and sort of failed or couldn't find an economic, not failed, well, see, I failed um, or couldn't make work economically. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, but I tried lots of things and I got lots of engaged in lots of things and was doing a lot of reading and thinking um and creativity and then um and then then i did uh went to film school and journalism school and focused on when i went to journalism just focused on science writing and uh, i thought you know the, the film and journalism really gave me a really broad it really kind of covered the kinds of things i'm interested in um kind of having a broad interest in in politics in in the arts in culture in music in science um and and in the future in thinking about sort of these sorts of issues um and then started working in research and science um uh in that kind of communications space um that's uh kind of led to where i am today i suppose you seem to be a very sought after man because anybody who goes into your linkedin page will see all the people that you've worked with and that and they go okay god almighty you know you talked about you know not being able to make things work economically i mean are you the kind of person now who do you have to turn down things when people want to talk about you know be it the environment or, or you know at the aerospace or research or that kind of thing or do you still have to sort of get up on a monday morning and make sure you have enough work for the week <laughs> I I uh, yeah I, I I probably say yes to too many things I suppose um I but I I think I all I would say is that the kind of expertise I have is like in that sort of um I've got expertise in lots of areas or a very broad expertise in in systems um and how how systems work and how the business links to media and the media links to policy um and, and maybe quite a bit of knowledge on on earth system science and um uh, and and uh, you know globalization economics so i, I have a, a kind of probably a unique knowledge um set um that is uh, seems to be useful um so uh yeah some uh, it's uh, I, I I don't know um, uh, I don't know if it's marketable, but hopefully it's useful to to organisations. Um, yeah, and I and I guess um, I, I also find it very difficult to commit. Um, so I end up working with um, you know several organisations at the same time. But I th I find that very very useful because um, you know it's it's really good for organisations to link in with other organisations to uh, know what they're you know for ideas to spread. Um, on a, on a kind of deep level. So I'm, I'm kind of, I like to experiment with communications. I like to experiment with networks. Um, and that uh, experiments, that experimentation is, is useful. People, people seem to find it valuable. It's a, that kind of cross pollination, you know, when you you have a, a little bit of an idea and then somebody says, oh, we could do it this way. And I always find that fascinating. And it's yeah. always the people you least expect and maybe you might have the least in common with. And then all of a sudden, you know, that's where the magic happens, so to speak. But, you know? well, absolutely. And I mean, I, I mean, one example of that is with, um, you know, put, you know, one thing I, I, a few years ago, um, I published a research paper um, 
uh, called the Carbon Law Paper, essentially. Um, and we're, in it, um, we proposed that to meet the Paris Agreement, we need to halve emissions by 2030. That's the most likely pathway. Um, and why, why was that important? Um, because um, all the other research papers and uh, reports and analytics had said, oh, well, we need to be zero sometime after 2050. Um, which is like not such a good message for policymakers or business because that puts the um, problem way off to another generation to deal with. Um, and and the, basically we were arguing, well, actually to get to zero by 2050, you need to do most of the work in the next eight years by, by 2030. Um, but that idea came about through, um, you know, I was talking to a bunch of some of my colleagues at Stockholm Resilience Center about the scale of the Paris Agreement and meeting that, the climate objectives there, but also speaking to um, a, a colleague at Intel, the computer manufacturer, the chip manufacturer, who was talking to me about Moore's Law and uh, how Moore's Law worked in the um, technology sector as like a sort of general rule of thumb that everybody followed, like that computer power will double every two years. And, uh, and uh, you know, every company kind of follows that law and it's just a, become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Hmm. Um, and it's, you know, a, a generalization um, that works. And he said, you should really do something like that for, for climate because um, something that everybody can follow. I said, but we don't want things to increase. Um, but, uh, but that did lead me to think that, um, well, okay, exponentials do decrease as well. And um, that halving trajectory is, is quite an important thing to say to people because, you know, you and I can halve our emissions, but so can a company, but so can a city, so can a um, country, or so could the planet as a whole. So um, uh, that so as a, a communication, it's been very, very powerful. Um, and we can see businesses and um, countries now um, uh, adopting these sorts of trajectories. So that's uh, but that that is genuinely coming from um, having that kind of networked mindset and being um, and having you know deep conversations with with people in business uh, and in science and uh, and policy. I've been dealing with a couple of companies over the last while and talking about several of these things. And for once, I actually feel that they're serious. That when they talk about cutting emissions and when they talk about you know being climate neutral by twenty thirty, they actually mean it. Are you hopeful at this stage, Owen? Do we dare hope that this is that this can be done and will be done in time? Well, so yeah, my glass is um, half empty and half full at the same time, or something. There must be, um, I, but it, it's 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 possible. So it's still feasible to do that. So the best available evidence says all the solutions are there to actually achieve it. Um, and that's the best thing we could possibly do. That's That should be um, everybody's mission right now um, to do that. Um, will it actually happen? You know, just even today, we've had um, uh, two reports out, you know, saying that uh, we'll, how far off track we are, mm. that uh, projections are showing that by 2030, emissions will be about the same as they are today. And that, that is absolutely catastrophic. That's catastrophic for humanity mm. um, to, to, to do that. We're we're pushing you know future generations into a unlivable world um and you know uh, you know it's not an ethical issue it's an existential issue so um on the one hand i can see we can we can achieve it i can even see places like sweden um uh, get it getting there very rapidly um and uh, you know huge progress in in the united states even this year but we're not moving fast enough um we we can though we we we, we we can, you know, get our finger out and uh, uh, and and move faster. 
without doubt you know so you know what one thing with the pandemic um showed very clearly is that behavior and business models can change very very rapidly if people understand i mean it's one of those things that's getha tumbay i've interviewed her must be 20 30 times over the last few years and she always says start treating the crisis like a crisis and at the beginning i thought was you know do you not have anything new for me i just got no no we still have to start treating the crisis like a crisis um the one last question that i have here and again thank you so much for your time it's been fascinating to talk to you um what can we do in a concrete way? Because it's one thing me switching to an electric guitar, uh, electric guitar, an electric car, and uh, you know sorting my garbage and everything else like that. But would I be better spending that time calling up my local politician and say, "Look, you have to start doing something about this"? What's the best way forward for us as citizens to achieve what we need to achieve? Well, yeah, email your politician, um, phone phone them up. Um, absolutely, you know we can all make effort and uh, and it does make a difference um particularly if you tell people about it um you know if uh, if if you start cutting out meat and you, um and you don't tell anyone about it that's hardly going to make any difference but if you start telling people about it um just people close to you that'll that'll make them think about it and uh, and potentially um start shifting them and then they'll tell um people around them and you get that um that cascade without doubt and uh you know, some famous research on, um, you know, moving to, you know, if if you if you have uh, you know a, a four person family, and your daughter becomes vegetarian, pretty much everybody becomes vegetarian in that family pretty soon afterwards, mm-hmm. um, or they certainly start cutting down meat. So there is that sort of um, that uh, that that those feedback loops. But it's you know contacting politicians um, and voting for the the parties that um, uh, make your your vote um, you know, count. Uh, that uh, that are going to move, move things because um, that's uh, that's it's a systemic change we need um, and we need uh, governments to make those big long term decisions uh, and long term investments and and direct companies to, um, um, to 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 move so that's uh, that's 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 my advice. Um, as one of Greta Thunberg's friends is uh, very fond of saying, there is no planet B. So I do hope that uh, the vision of hope that you painted in the book Earth for All, that it does come true in the very near future. But for now, Owen Gaffey, thanks so much for the time you've taken to talk to us. Ah, thanks for inviting me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. was the lovely, the wonderful, the extremely intelligent and articulate Owen Gaffney there. And I was looking for a bit of an old clip. You know the way I like to stick in a bit of an old clip at the end of the interviews, boys and girls. And I was looking for something like that. And unfortunately, it was all kind of negative. You know, it's all like, you know, um, oh, climate change is a disaster. It's real, etc, etc, etc. And it's not that I don't believe that. Of course I do. But I didn't want to be sort of leaving you on a negative note with it, right? Because I think Owen is, is very sort of positive and said, look, this can be done. It's not too late, etc. Maybe we should keep that mindset for as long as we can. And the irony of me sitting here in Doha where they built eight stadiums for billions and billions of dollars and they're using air conditioning down on the field because in November it's kind of a bit warm for the old football lads. Uh, That irony is not lost on me, I can tell you. But there you go. That was Owen Gaffney talking about these things. 
your reminder that you need to be getting into the Irish store uh, from Bro now. Go out and Google the Irish store Bro if you're looking for your bits and pieces for Christmas there, especially if you're living above or working above in Lulio and you need a few old tatoes or a few old tea bags to get you through until the Christmas break. And the same thing for the lads on the sites in Yavla and where have you. And down below in Malmo there, I know that they've had a recent delivery there. Now, I haven't had a chance to check the website because I've been up to my ears here. Um, but there's plenty of deliveries going out there so get your orders in as early as you possibly can and Malena and Graham Reggie Reynolds down there in the Irish store in Erebro will get the stuff off to you as quickly as possible tell them I sent you and they look after you and of course we spoke there to uh, Gareth from Taylor and Jones a couple of weeks ago so if you're in Stockholm and looking for uh, your turkey you'll know where to get that back go back a week or so ago uh, uh, no, so I think it's two weeks ago now when we were talking to Jen about her pasta business as well but just at the end there we spoke to Gareth uh, or maybe in the book Jesus you know what I can't even remember I can't meet myself coming back here but yeah have a listen to that episode and Gareth, Gareth will give you a few tips for cooking your turkey and where to get it and where to get all your goodies and if I'm leaving you out lads if there's somewhere down in, in Malmo or if there's a shop down in Gothenburg or a butcher's anywhere that it needs to be mentioned get it into me contact me on Facebook Claire King is great for that on Instagram she'll always leave a little comment here or there and tell us how much she enjoyed the show and it's very much appreciated it seems that loads of people enjoyed the little chat last week with Carl Stein who's a great character and who I cannot believe still that it took me a year to get him on the podcast or more than a year of this podcast uh, and to finally get him on to talk about Tushed his business there and I know that a few of the listeners out there have already been online at Tushed and uh, the ordering stuff for the Christmas that kind of thing it's great to see it's great to see the community supporting the community people supporting our businesses and again I would um say huge thanks to Martin Hessian at Veerstrom's who's been a, a stalwart supporter of this podcast from day one and if you're planning Christmas drinks especially if you work with a bunch of Swedes right and especially if they've loads of money right get them in there get them to put that money behind Martin's bar he'll look after you he'll put on their menu for you there's all sorts of fancy IPAs and that kind of thing there's guest beers left right and centre and the finest pint of Guinness known to man lads not just in Sweden or Scandinavia but known to man all served with a smile by the wonderful staff down in Veerstrom's pub right i'm going to get back to work here we will keep the podcast coming now it might get a little bit difficult but like i think i have enough interviews in the bag to get me through but you just never know so if there's anybody out there with a story to tell get in touch as well i will be back in sweden on the 11th of december and then we'll be doing a few more pods in the run-up to christmas we'll see who you can meet up with in that but in the meantime take care of yourselves and take care of one another out there especially in the snow don't be making the unnecessary journeys as rte told us many years ago uh, but look after yourselves sharon i'll be back to you with a another podcast this, tech, this time next week right good luck